Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Next week, at this time, we will not be here. We will be out. Some of you will be here, but many of us will be out. We'll be all over the city, all over the West Valley, because next week is Inside Out. I'm fired up about Inside Out. And I'll tell you what, uh, when you show up next week, you're going to get a wonderful blue t-shirt. Now, the plan was we were supposed to have the blue t-shirts here today. But the reality is that much of the wonderful nation that we live in, they have horrible weather. And so the t-shirts got inhibited in their delivery because of the horrible weather. Now, we can't really understand that when we live here. We don't know what that means. Because no matter how hot it is, you can still move. You know, you don't get frozen or you don't get stuck. You don't get delayed. So our t-shirts are rotting away in some warehouse somewhere between here and wherever they were made. And they were supposed to be here on Friday. But we couldn't get them. So that's okay. You will get them um, next Sunday when you show up. So make sure you show up particularly early, 8.30, but even 8.15, because it starts at 8.30. We have a little rally, and then we go. I also want to make sure that you know that this little thing tells you when you go to the sign-up table that if you have kids five and under, and you're like, well, I don't want to go do a bunch of work with my two-year-old kid, you know, because what if they get, you know, stuck in some bush somewhere and I can't find them? Or what if someone hands them a chainsaw? I mean, this is not good. Well, if your kids are five and under, you leave them here. We'll have fun activities for them to do while you go out and work. So don't use your kids as an excuse to not come to Inside Out because it's going to be awesome. So they'll have a great time. You'll have a great time. I want to make sure that you know that. But this t-shirt you're going to get next week is not one of these gilded, you know, $3 shirts that you wear once and then you use to clean your furniture afterwards. This is a high-quality t-shirt that actually will make you look better. It will. It's form-fitting. It's slimming. It's stretchy, but just stretchy enough. So, you know, it's just going to be perfect. And it's going to be the color of this screen. That color looks good on everybody. It matches everything. And it's bright, so you'll be visible if you're working outside near a street. They'll say, what are all these people doing wearing their blue shirts? Well, I will tell you that we are a part of what I'm going to call the Blue T-Shirt Society. And the Blue T-Shirt Society is not just for people who wear the blue T-Shirt. But when you take this shirt next week, because it will be here by next week if we have to go out to Des Moines or wherever they are and get them. But we will have them. But when you take this shirt, it's more than just saying, hey, it's a free T-Shirt. When you take this shirt, you're making a statement to yourself and to everyone else that you're in. That you're a part of this blue t-shirt society. Now it's no exaggeration to say that the blue t-shirt society is full of people who understand that greatness and excellence in life and the secret to true significance is not found the way the world typically sees it's found. They don't see celebrity as important. They don't see recognition as the goal. They have the courage to to do what needs to be done even if no one ever notices. 
So the Blue T-Shirt Society that we're all joining next week is committing itself to a specific passage of Scripture found in Mark 10, starting with verse 42. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there right now. And as you're turning there in your phone or whatever you brought for the Scripture, you've got a scene where two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, approach him with a request. And the request is basically, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. Yeah. And Jesus is like, okay, this will be fun. This isn't normal, but go ahead. Let's go down this road. And they say, well, listen. And I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but just so you get the context. We believe in this kingdom that you're talking about bringing. We get it. You've been talking about bringing this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and how it's going to overthrow basically the world in a sense at some point. We believe that. And so when you overthrow the Roman Empire and you set up this new kingdom over the earth, we would like to be your wingmen, your bouncers. We want to sit one at the left and one at the right when you are in your kingdom. We would like to have those wonderful positions of honor. Now, I don't know if Jesus laughed or cried at this point, but it's interesting that Matthew's version of the story includes James and John, not only them, but also their mother, Salome. So his mother comes up, their mother comes up, and she's like, hey, Jesus, how much money do I have to pay to get my boys in? We've heard this story, right? See, it's been going on for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. It's a low blow there, baby. Yeah. Full house, huh? I'm just, look, we just report the news here. Okay. But it's been going on for a long time. And see, what makes makes it even more difficult is that Salome, the mother, is actually the sister of Jesus' mother, so it's his aunt. His aunt. His aunt Salome. And that means these two guys are the cousins. And so now they've got the family card being played. And so, to make matters even worse, the other disciples overhear this conversation. The Bible says that they are indignant. Indignant isn't a word that we use a lot, but it's a word that parents, you probably often feel when it comes to your kids. And they do something really lame and you become indignant. And it's basically like, you know, James and John, you guys suck. What's wrong with you guys? I mean, you go and run around us, and you go to the boss secretly to get a position for yourselves. Well, what about the rest of us? What are we? And you can understand that they're mad, so they're all mad. And you know, you got these guys, they're all in their late 20s, early 30s. And you know, they're, you got guys like Peter, kind of ready, fire, aim, right? They're just, there's probably some not very nice words going on between them. And a couple of guys, maybe they took some, some uh, you know, MMA classes and they're ready to throw down, right? And they're starting to push each other and make fun of each other as mothers. And Jesus steps in the middle. Hey, guys, 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 relax. Everybody stop, okay? Relax. And he proceeds to tell them this in verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So in other words, like, you know those who are considered rulers. These emperor guys run around their togas and act all arrogant like they own the place. Well, it's kind of because they do own the place. And they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But 
It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you. Now this is really important. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this is a groundbreaking moment. Because here once again we see Jesus turning the world inside out. He's reversing the order of things. Because he says we live in a world dominated by power structures. We live in a world where if you have enough money, yeah, you can have an average kid and you can give him enough, you can pay off the people and get him into the good schools ahead of somebody else. Now some of you know what it's like to live in a world where you do feel like you've had limitations because of power structures in place that have kept you out. And there's nothing that you can do. And it's frustrating and it's it's. And so what happens is we live in this world where people will step over the other person to get ahead. They crawl over each other to get to the top and crush you to elevate themselves. We have a world where people live and die on the like button. The little heart button. Did you know that Facebook, only 10 years ago, you think that it would have been around forever, Facebook. But it's a relatively new invention, social media. But they had a problem, you know, I don't know, eight or nine years ago or so, because people were going to Facebook, but they were only going there like once a day. And they would look at the, the, the news feed of their friends, and they would see what their friends were doing, and then they would just leave. And they weren't going back to the site. And so Facebook is like, how are we going to monetize this thing? How are we going to make it any, give it so it makes any money? And so they were wondering, and they thought and thought about this, and they came up with this brilliant idea, this massive, one little tiny thing that changed everything for social media forever. The like button. This. The like button. Because what they realized is every time when they installed the like button, somebody clicked like, and you saw that somebody liked what you said, you got a shot of dopamine in your head. And it felt so good. And so you went back again to see if someone else liked it. But they didn't. Five people liked it. And then 10 people liked it. And then 20. And then all of a sudden, you're like, I'm on top of the world, baby. Right? And now it becomes a competition. Because I got 100 likes, and your sorry carcass only got 95. And that means I'm better than you. That means my life is more important than yours. That means I have a reason to live. And the dopamine, the adrenaline, the chemicals in your brain just make you feel amazing because status becomes significance and recognition becomes importance. My life is important and significant because someone clicked a button because they thought my hamburger looked good. That means I matter. Oh. And if I get more than yours, that means you don't. At least not as much as I do. So this is the whole thing, right? So we live in this world now where we're chasing that as though it makes our lives meaningful. So we live in a world where status is everything. 
But Jesus said that world is going away because the new kingdom that I, as the Son of God, 100% God, 100% man, the world that I am bringing in, the rules are going to be different because in this world that is emerging, that's overcoming the current system, if you want to sit at the right or the left, if you want to have status and power, you don't do that by doing an end run around your friends to try to get power over them dudes. In this kingdom, you gain status. You become great. You have the capability of potentially positions of prominence in this new kingdom. You get there by transforming yourself into a servant. That's how it works in the kingdom that I'm bringing that no one can stop. You join the blue t-shirt society. And you go out where you normally wouldn't go. I don't agree with everything this guy says, but Robert Schuler once said, the way to do this is you find a need and meet it. You find a hurt and you heal it. You go to work for the people God has placed around you and you become their slave. Now the word slave is loaded these days. It doesn't mean that you give up your autonomy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It means that you willfully choose to live your life trying to make heroes out of other people rather than a hero out of yourself. You become a hero maker. You measure your wealth based on the lives you were able to help, the people you were able to build, and the hope that you were able to give effusively to others. If you want to sit at the right hand or the left, you've got to be willing to give up all hopes of recognition and fame. But of course not significance. Because significance is found in building people, in caring for people, and doing what is, what is best for others, regardless of the fanfare you may or may not receive. So, you know, in the remaining time that we have, I want to ask, what does that require? In other words, if I'm actually going to do that, what does it require of me to become a servant? Because it would be very easy to have this nice Pollyanna sermon where we say, let's just go serve other people. And everyone goes, yeah. And then you're like, but how and why and what and what do I do? And so you feel good for like 15 minutes and then like a half hour later when you get back into the world, it, it goes away. So what does it require? Well, I think it requires three qualities that happen to all start with S. And I didn't plan on that. It's just the way that it happened. So I'm going to give you these three qualities that you've, you and I have got to build into our lives and at least consider if we're going to become the kind of people that Jesus says are going to occupy the actual kingdom, not the world system that's falling apart and decaying right before our very eyes. So the first S is this. If you want to be a servant, it's going to require strength. Physical, emotional, spiritual, and moral strength. It takes strength to be a servant, contrary to popular opinion. Serving is not for the weak. And so next weekend, or next week, next Sunday when we're here, we go out and do this service event, it's going to require something out of us. Because we're doing something we don't have to do. We're solving problems we didn't create. We're bearing burdens that we did not generate. It's not your fault there's homeless people out there. It's not your fault that there's people living in domestically horrible situations. They don't have the capacity to even care for their own home. You didn't do that. 
but that's not the issue. The issue is that there are people on this earth, namely us, who have developed the capacity based on the grace of God to not only care for our own needs, but have a surplus, residual level of energy to care for the needs of others. But that did not ultimately come from within us. It was a gift that God gave us. So because of the gift that God's given to us, we have developed residual capacity to move on and carry someone else's load, at least for a time. Now, this is ultimately something that puts you in a position of strength. Why is this something that should be looked down upon? Why is this something that should be, like, you know, turned away from? Like, I wouldn't want to be like that. When the very nature of what it requires is strength. I mean, when you go on a, like, a hike or whatever, and you got a pack on your back, and you see someone else struggling, if you can carry your own weight— that's ultimately a good thing. It's even better when you can carry someone else's weight who's struggling. And why they're struggling doesn't really matter. You know you're on this journey together and you're trying to carry it for them. Now last time that we did Inside Out, I remember at the end I was all kind of dirty and hot from being out there and doing different projects. Had a great time. And I remember, you know, um, we went to lunch afterwards. And I'll be honest with you. Like I was sitting there and I saw other people that you could tell had, had, they had been to church that day too because they had their church clothes on. And I remember I was kind of looking at them with like a uh, condescending eye. Kind of like, huh, my morning was harder than your morning. Unless, of course, you had to sit through a really boring sermon somewhere. But I bet you, I know that my worship service today was more hardcore than your worship service. Because I went out and I worshiped God by what I did. And I'm like, that's not bad. It's kind of an arrogant thought. But... I couldn't help myself looking at all these nicely dressed people like, yeah, I went out and I made it happen today. You know, we served people and that was a good thing. But what I'm trying to say though is that it'd be very easy. No, there's a wrong with coming, of course. I want you to sit here and be a part of the church, of course. But what I'm saying is it does require something a little bit more than just simply showing up passively. You have to plan and think about this. And it may make some of us even a little bit nervous, like I gotta go out. Or maybe you even just see it as a burden, like really? If there's of all the weekends to miss, Let's miss next week and let's just not tell anybody. Well, why would you do that? I mean, I think that we have cultivated a congregation here that has residual strength. I mean, I hear you over the years that you've been here. See, being a Christian doesn't mean you just raise your hand one day and check the box and you live like you did before you were a Christian. Now you just have fire insurance, right? And look, I'm not going to go to hell when I die. That's not what we're doing here. We're, be, we're conforming ourselves to the image of Christ, which means we're able to gain control of our lives so there isn't this massive chaos happening where we need to be dependent on other people. Now, sometimes you do need to be dependent on other people, but the goal is that that would switch and that you would be the one that others would look to, to turn to, to find strength in their life in so to some degree. And so it's actually an opportunity that we have. Serving becomes an opportunity. It becomes a privilege. It becomes a gift. Our event requires strength. Now, not necessarily physical strength, but it requires some level of stepping out of what we normally do. You grab the rake, you grab the shovel, the paintbrush, or whatever it is, and we go to work on a Sunday. This is the reason why we should develop resilience in our lives. Why we should learn how to control our emotions and discipline ourselves, not just only for ourselves, but so that we have stuff left over to give to others. 
So service ultimately requires strength. But the second thing it requires is not only strength, it's also this. Strategy. Strategy. In other words, we need to get beyond this idea that serving means I'll do whatever anyone asks me to do because I'm just going to be this like passive servant. Oh, you need me to do this? Okay, I'll do it. No, 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 no. See, when Jesus says become slave of all, again, we have to make sure we understand this is not an endorsement of slavery. Slavery is a violation of the will. Slavery is compulsion to do what someone else wants you to do, and they force you to do it. And it is always evil, it is always wicked, and it is always wrong. And so it's never an endorsement for that. We have to understand that. And we also have to be very aware that what Jesus is after is our willful desire to help and serve others. So we, be, we put ourselves in the service of others at will. And we give up maybe the things we could have taken for ourselves because we want to show and demonstrate love to people. This is why, and again, we live in a wonderful nation where we're able to do this. And we have to be very careful when we hear about ideas about government structures that are, have good intentions behind them, that, but ultimately seek to compel people to live in a certain way for the service of humanity if they don't want to do that. And so we have to be very concerned about structures that take away our autonomy, that take from certain people and give to other people, or that force you to act or live and take a certain job. That's why things like communism are so evil, because it's done for the good of humanity, but it forces you to do something, as opposed to the free will of being able to do it. That being said, we do live in this wonderful country where we can sit there and go, yeah, I have a responsibility to develop myself. But here's what happens. You know what happens? In a country like ours where we have so much liberty, and it's a beautiful thing, there's this little strain that comes out in certain people. And I, do, I see it in Christian circles, and I see it a lot with ev like evangelical Christians, and I even see it out here in the wild west of Arizona where I, we love living here out in the desert. But there is kind of a little bit of a mentality, like this rugged individualism. And I think individualism is cool from the standpoint of like, hey, you know what? I want to be able to take care of myself, but it goes too far with certain people, where it's almost like this idea of like, you know what, it's a free country, and I have every right to go out, I can go out to some town out here, and buy a few acres, and put a little compound on there, and build a big wall around it, you know, put some cactuses out, so if anyone tries to get near, they'll get stabbed by a cactus, and you know, I can just tell the whole world, you know what, y'all can just go to hell. I'll build myself a little bunker, store a bunch of food, and I'm just gonna, it's gonna be all about me, man. This is a free country, and you try, to come, you try to come take my guns, I will light you up. You try to take my property, you know what? Because my responsibility to the country is zero. Zero. I don't want to do nothing for anybody. Because it's my, it's, my, it's my right. It's a free country. And you're right. You have the ability in our country to think that way. But I'm not sure that the people that died on the shores of Normandy, or Bagram, or Iraq, and continue to give their lives every day for our country, spill their blood. I'm not sure they do that so that you can just sit back in some compound somewhere and tell the rest of the world to just shove it. I think the reason that so many people have worked so hard to secure liberty was so that we would not have to live under a compulsion that we would not have our lives dictated for us, but rather under the side of God, I could turn back to my fellow man and say, thank you for the liberties that have been given to me. Now how can I help? And you and I, believe it or not, have a responsibility to develop ourselves 
and to look at our gifts and to maximize our gifts and not just to go, oh, I'm not good at anything or I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just not very talented or, you know, no one needs me. Uh. It's like that's the dumbest thing in the world. We've been given this great opportunity. There's no other time. You know, you can sit there and, and long for the past. You know, everybody longs for the past. Even the ancient Greeks longed for the past. Oh, back in 1500 B.C., man. It was so great. You know, here they are at 1000 B.C., right? And it's like, oh, way back then, man, back before the wheel, it was so easy. It's, everybody thought that. They have studies. It's a human condition thing. And for you to sit here, do you realize in most cultures of the world, if you are 40 or over, if you were dropped into a, another time and another culture in human history, you'd either be dead by now or you wish you were dead. Because you'd be so full of disease, you have no teeth left, you couldn't see anything, you'd be eating terrible food, freezing your butt off every night. You wish, no one lived past 40 for much of world history. Look at the world that we have. Look at the opportunity that we have to develop ourselves. Why? So that we become, we can become the best servants of our fellow man. You know, one of the things that drives me to read and to discover and to, to take even like, you know, to continue to take like these self-evaluation tests and whatever else is because I go, I want to be better so I could be a better pastor, a better leader, a better communicator. So that when you, so that when you come here, you, you, you can look at your pastor. Maybe he's ratcheted up a little bit in terms of his ability to be able to be the kind of guy that you need me to be. I have a responsibility to do that to you. And if I don't actively develop myself to be in your service, that's wrong. And you should think the same thing about yourself. If you're just blowing off your gifts like, oh, you know, or you're trying to be someone that you're not, why are you doing that? You be who God made you to be so that you can be in the service of others. I love what Steve Farber said, in a, the author of a book called The Radical Leap. He said, do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. And when we're going to serve people, we have this opportunity to maximize. So we're strategic. And we don't just do anything for anyone all the time. But, we don't, but here's the same, at the same time, here's what we do. We don't say, when it comes to getting a job, the number one question, well, how much money can I make? How much power can I get? No, the question you should ask, especially you young people when you're considering a, a career path or if you're an older person considering a job change or even if you are retired, and congratulations for those of you who are retired. Seriously, that takes a lot of hard work and discipline. So congratulations, it's awesome. But whatever you are in life, the question you should be asking is, how best can this role, this job, this opportunity allow me to serve the people around me? That's what Jesus is getting at. Because we need you to do that. If you stop developing yourself, we all lose. If you stop understanding who God made you, we lose you. We lose the gift that God gave to this earth of you and your opportunity to help us. This is why this is so much bigger than, than just merely some heartfelt, you know, random act of kindness. It's the stupidest word. Random act of kindness and senseless act of duty like those crazy hippies had on their cars back in the 60s. That's like the dumbest statement in the world. How do you practice something that's random anyway? And how can you do an act of beauty that's senseless? It doesn't even, things don't even make any sense. It makes a lot of sense when you're smoking pot, but other than that, it makes no sense. <laughs> we don't do things that are random. We do things that are strategic. Your life is all you've got. So develop it. Hone your skills. Some of you are living below your potential because you haven't seen that your life's about serving other people. I'm just telling you. The last one is this. 
So you have strength, you have strategy, and secrecy. Secrecy. Doing things in secret without the overwhelming need for everyone in your life to know. Last week I heard an interview with Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks. He's talking about when he first started Starbucks early on, about six years in. There was a business mogul, a guy he just simply called a titan, a business titan in Seattle who was going to make a move to steal Starbucks out from underneath Schultz. You know, these guys have a lot of money. They can do that kind of thing. And so this guy was aggressively trying to figure out how to take Schultz's company from him. But there was an attorney in Seattle who heard about this and grabbed Schultz and said, listen, I don't want this to happen, and I know this guy. So he and Schultz went across the street in downtown Seattle to where this business titan worked, walked right into his office, and this attorney slammed his hand on the desk and said, you are going to stand down. You are not going to take this company from this young man. Back off. And he did. Howard Schultz says if it were not for this man, we would not have Starbucks today which is a devastating thought to some people. The man happened to be a guy named Bill Gates Sr., the father of Bill Gates. But here's the thing. Bill Gates Sr. never told anyone about that for decades. Didn't even tell his own son. Meanwhile, this company takes off in 70-plus countries, the, the number five on the, on the Forbes most admired companies list. Never told a soul that he was the one that saved Starbucks until very recently it came out. I've shown you this picture before. This is, the Riverside, this is at the Riverside National Cemetery. They have a monument to Medal of Honor recipients. It's beautiful, actually. And it's kind of this big marble wall with all these names etched in it. And it, you're just surrounded by it, right? These just long lists of names. And so we were there with several, with a bunch of other chaplains. Many of you know I'm a chaplain with the Air Force and uh, as a reservist. And I've been at March Air Reserve Base out in California for some time. And so we were out there and I noticed that... On se in several places, there was this weird inscription, and you can see it underneath this guy, Redar Whaler. It says, unknown but to God. I was like, well, that's weird. How do you have a monument to someone that you don't even know? I mean, I understand, like, there's like, the tomb of the unknown soldier. I get that. And it, but, but, like, there's this one specific, and there's several places around the area where it's sat. And I go, I don't understand this. And they're kind of marked by battle and that, going all the way back to the Civil War. And they're kind of marked by these different campaigns and battles. And so I, I, I asked, and no one knew, and so I finally asked the guy that worked there, I said, hey, what's the deal? Why, why is it say unknown but to God? He says, well, the reason is, this is a situation where someone, there was a soldier, there's somebody in uniform who did something very heroic, and in the fog of war, in all the chaos, he gave his life, but no one knew who it was. So like, the, they launched on it, they, you know, sat on a grenade, or they ran into the fire, and, and you know, um, 
got someone out or whatever. They, they, they lurched onto some bomb or whatever, and they blew themselves up, you know, so the others could live. They just, and in all of the craziness, we couldn't recover that person. And we didn't know who it was. And it was just, but everyone saw it. It was a verifiable act of heroism that deserved some sort of recognition, but we just, for the life of us, don't know who it was. So that's what they put. There was an amazing act of bravery. Unknown. But to God. Can I ask you a question? If that was you, would you be okay with that? Would you be okay if all of the other names were up there who had spilled their blood and given their lives? But yours wasn't. It just said unknown. But to God. Would you be okay with that? Or would you be like, hey, what about me? What about my recognition? Would you still do it if you knew it'd be unknown? Secrecy. If you're going to live in this kingdom that Jesus has brought, you need to develop strength. You need to be strategic. Not random. Focused. Committed. And you need to be willing to do some pretty selfless, sacrificial things that you can't brag about. What is the effect of this service? What is the effect of descending into greatness as Jesus offering to us. What can you hope to see happen by committing yourself to strength, strategy, and secrecy? Well, according to Jesus, you'll do nothing more than reorder the entire world. That you announce, that you live out, that you begin to display what the real kingdom looks like, who the real great people are, where the real first class winners are. You know, we've always had a broken world, but it feels like it's getting even more broken by the day. The price of our connectivity is that our anger and rage spreads like a virus. That one man with a helmet cam and hatred in his heart and all kinds of firepower can mow down a bunch of men, women, and children who should absolutely be allowed to worship as they choose to worship in peace. And it's so close to us, New Zealand, you know. It's so far away, but yet, because of the quality of the picture, you can watch it like you were right there. And so it makes us feel like it happened right next to us. And we have to ask ourselves, what is going to catalyze the breaking down of the barriers that we put ourselves in? Because now it's like, if you're this race, then you belong in this box. If you're this gender, you belong in this box. If, you're th- if you identify sexually in terms of your orientation, you belong in this box. If you vote this way, you belong in this box. If you have this amount of money, you belong in this box. And so we've all gotten to our little tribes, and tribalism is a primitive and ugly and bloody way to live your life. 
Just ask the thousands of years of human history that proved it. This is why Inside Out is more important than ever because it breaks all the rules. You see, do we care next week when we go serve? Do we care how the person that we're serving votes? Do we care what their sexual orientation is? Do we care what their race is? How much money they make? No. No, no, no. When we go out and we serve, we're showing the community, the world from God's perspective. We're blurring the lines because we're stepping out and we're saying, your life matters. I listen to this amazing podcast on the Art of Manliness podcast that I listen to a lot. It's good. And he interviewed this guy named Robert Curson, who wrote a book called Rocket Men about the Apollo 8 mission. It was the most dangerous journey that they had mapped out, the dangerous mission ever to that point, because what they wanted to do was rather than just go around the earth in orbit, they had a rocket to do that, but we were in the middle of the space race, and the Soviets were beating us, and while it may seem trite to us now, back then it was a very big deal that we beat the Soviets to the moon. It was just a very big deal. And so the astronauts and the scientists at NASA came up with a plan. They said, we can take this thing that we already have that, that goes around the earth, and we can launch it to the moon, and rather than land on the moon, we can go around the moon and use the gravity to come back, and we can be the first people to send a manned mission to the moon and back. And so they began to plan this mission, but they, where they normally would have 18 months or a year, they only had four months to plan this entire mission. And when one of the guys planning it called his superior and told him about it, the guy said, do you understand the stakes if you fail? Because one of the challenges is, even if you make it to the moon, if you can't get back, we will have these guys in an eternal orbit around the moon, and there will be three corpses forever orbiting the moon. So now when every human being walks out and looks at the moon, they will know there are three dead men rotting and decomposing, flying around that moon, and we will have failed. You will ruin the moon! No pressure, right? And what's more, it's the mission's going to take place on Christmas. And if you fail, you will ruin the moon and Christmas. Because now there's Santa Claus. He's always got the moon behind him. There's going to be Santa Claus and the reindeer and the moon and a dead guy's behind him. You're going to ruin everything if you fail. And you have four months to figure it out. So they get everything ready. And when the three astronauts, Bill Anders, Frank Borman, and Jim Lovell, were about ready to go, they said, listen, you know, um, the NASA people told them, if you get to the moon and we expect that you will, the whole world's going to be listening to your broadcast. Well, maybe not the whole world, but about one-third of the world will be listening to you. So you got to think of something good to say. And they're like, we don't know what to say. And so they inquired to different friends and these linguistic, you know, um, talented people that know how to write stuff. These literary geniuses, rather. You know, the writers and whatnot. Well, tell us what to say. They don't know. We don't know what to say. Finally, one guy, he was talking to this one guy. His wife came in. She's like, what's wrong? He says, uh, you know, the astronauts, they want me to figure out what to say to the, when they get to the moon. I have no idea. She goes, well, I know what to say. 
she told him, and then he told them, and they wrote it down, and they packed it away and put it in their little pocket. They didn't tell NASA. They didn't tell anybody. And so when they launch the rocket, and it's going towards the moon, right? And the thing is, it's, it's, they're going backwards, so the earth is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And finally, out of the window, they see for the first time, there it is, this big, giant, white sphere of the moon. And they go around the back side of the moon, right? Which wasn't the dark side, because now the sun's lighting it up. So they can see for the first time the other side of the moon. And as they're seeing it, all of a sudden, out from the horizon comes a little blue planet Earth. The guy says he can put his thumb up like this, and he can block it. The entire planet is that big. And for the first time, he said, the, the astronaut said, we could see the Earth the way God sees it. Without all the boundaries, without all the hatred, without all the violence, without all the fear, without all the tribalism, we saw this little blue planet. And so, with the world watching and listening, tuning in in 1968, what do you say when you're the first person to get to the moon? And with the whole world watching, one of the astronauts begins to read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It begins to read chapter one of the book of Genesis. And as he's reading of God's creation with the little view of the earth, back here on earth, people are streaming out of their homes and bars and taverns to look up at the moon while they're hearing the sound of Scripture because they saw and they understood the world the way God sees it. In the midst of Vietnam, in the midst of the Soviet space race and the Cold War, in the midst of the racial tension that had damaged so much of our country, the lines went away because we saw it the way God sees it. Now, I don't think that our little event next Sunday is going to have a worldwide impact. But I do believe that when we go out as the blue t-shirt society and we paint someone else's house and we pull someone else's weeds and we make a care package for a homeless person who, yeah, shouldn't be homeless, but they got on drugs and they're a pain in the butt in terms of their dependence on society. I get that. But, but they're there and they're one of God's children. And when we do those things, we blur the lines. And we help people see the world the way God sees it. Brothers and sisters made in his image who desperately need to know that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, yes, even for you, and yes, even for you, and most certainly for me. So, would you please take out of your bulletin this long sheet that looks like a sushi menu. <laughs> I would like every single one of you to pull this out right now and look at it. Because these are all the projects that if we do not have them properly staffed, we cannot do them yet. And so just like you would choose, you know, the tuna roll, you just put a little check mark next to the project that you would like. 
Now, I've been told that our main emphasis is on this community organization's where we are doing these things like serving lunch at the Phoenix Rescue Mission, pulling weeds, mowing, planting bushes and flowers. The, the, the community we live in is going to look different because of us in a week. You know that, right? It's going to look different. So I need you to fill this out. We have space for you and your spouse if that applies, and then an email address for you. And then there's a little bucket out in the lobby. Drop it in when you walk out. We need everyone to do this. Everyone. If you're not committed yet to a project, if you're already committed, then don't worry about it. But everyone else, we need you to do this. Why? Because it's our way of showing this community the words of Jesus. Hey, you know what? No questions asked, man. I don't care if you're an alcoholic, if you're a Satanist or an atheist or some, you know, whatever your gender identity is. God loves you. God loves you. And your life matters. That's why I got my blue t-shirt on. So I can show you. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you haven't yet received the grace of Jesus, that's where it starts. You see, what gives us the capacity to serve is that we've been served by the very God of the universe. And so if you're here today and you haven't yet trusted Him with your life, now is the opportunity to say, thank you, God, because you took the first step. You made the first move. You're the only, only God. The only one. The only record of a God that would ever love me the way you've loved me by standing in my place and taking what I owe by serving me when I didn't deserve it and so today I turn my life over to you because if that's the kind of God you are that's the kind of God I want to follow and become like and you made it so easy because you, you made yourself like one of us so all we got to do is look at that man and study that man and pattern our lives after that man. And we will unlock the secret. So, for those of you who haven't yet done that, you need to do that. Others of us, you know what? We call ourselves Christians, but to be honest, we've had this bunker mentality. We've had this hands-off, stay-out-of-my-face, it's-not-my-problem mentality. We've had this, how many likes do I have? I'm important only if someone recognizes me mentality. You've got to repent for that. There's no place in the kingdom for that sort of attitude. There's just no place for it. So if you want to be a low-level operator in heaven, keep doing what you're doing. God, we ask that as we fill out this long list of opportunities we have, we make our decisions, our free will decisions, that you'd fill our hearts with love, that you'd fill our hearts with generosity, fill our hearts with strength, 
that there are people out there that would just feel like maybe you are real and know that you are real because they see a bunch of people with blue t-shirts hitting the town, coming together at 8.30 on a Sunday morning to make it happen. We love and we serve because you first loved and you first served us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.